You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 126 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your co-host, Connor John, and I'm joined by my other co-host, David Ian Howe. What's up? He's really excited to be here. <laughs> what are your guys' thoughts on the um, the late queen and the uh, extant colonialism in which we live in? Ooh. <laughs> Before we get to the, I'm going to introduce our guest name, and it's Dr. Shane Miller. He was on episode 21, 37, and 76, and episode 98. And we also have Dr. Jesse Toon, who was on episode 37, 50, and also 76. So is this uh, the five, number five for me? Yeah. Timer's Club. Right. Get you a tuxedo or a, a bathrobe. <laughs> Man, I would wear that bathrobe. I'd wear it. I'd teach in it. <laughs> like swamming teaching in a robe. Uh, I'd just be out here just giving the people what they want, man. Just like <laughs> they they all know you guys now. Like all of our majors know you guys. So like it would be like a total, I guess as the youth would say it's concerning but someone yeah. asked me about Sarudi the other day and I just sent him a link to the episode about Sarudi perfect yeah that one in White Sands got like a ton of listens on all platforms and whatnot so yeah thank you guys for for coming back what have you guys been up to since episode 76 and episode 98 fishing well we we have an edited volume that came out with Ashley Smallwood. So it is a monstrous tome of a volume that's all things Southeastern archaeology and Ice Age archaeology. So it is called American... Wait, what, what was the name of our book, Jesse? <laughs> <laughs> the American Southeast at the end of the Ice Age? Yeah, it is the last ice age. Yeah. yeah. If you email us, we have a discount code that you could use if you're interested in such things. So if you're like, if you do CRM and you need to write like backgrounds for specific states, or if you want to like, a, we have an overview of radiocarbon dates, we got an overview of paleobotany, fauna. The crown jewel of Southeastern Paleo is Dust Cave. We got Sarah Sherwood to write a chapter about Dust Cave, kind of like a the latest and greatest overview of that site. Yeah, so I mean, we tried to be cover as many bases as we could in this thing, and it's been an odyssey. An edited volume is of that size. It took me, Ashley, and Jesse probably. Many, many days of trying to keep at least one of us from blowing a gasket and having a full Chernobyl meltdown. Um, (laughs) But we got it out. We got it out. 531 pages and what, 45, 47 different contributors? Yeah. Wild. That's a lot to corral. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, one of those things where it's luckily if you've run archaeological excavations, like that same skill set also gives you something of like the skill set for herding cats for an edited volume. It does say online that it's the first edition. Is there a thought that there's going to be a second edition at some point? Yeah, it's going to have to be 
tune at all, except for not <laughs> we do that again. <laughs> yeah. Nah. Bridges to cross miles down the road. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I don't I don't think I, so. This was like a this was an update to a book that Dave Anderson and Ken Sassman put out in ninety six that we all read as grad students. It's like on the on every southeastern archaeologist bookshelf. And so it's you know the Paleo Indian and early archaic southeast. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> he's actually gonna be on next week. I shouldn't do that, but um, <laughs> you could, man. Dave, Dave Anderson would be proud that you did the Spock hands just then. The and, man uh, waves to you with Spock hands. It, I, like I, he does that everywhere. Do you think he gives a shit? Like if you if you think that this is part of his persona, no, he embraces it. He's a legend, dude. One thing I, I wanted to preface, like while you guys are talking about your book. That might sound really boring to like the casual listener who's into pyramids, but like the early <laughs> archaic transition or like from the Pleistocene to the Holocene in like the Southeastern United States is actually a really fascinating spot in the world. And I think your book kind of talks about that, right? Or is it just specifically Ice Age this time? No, we get into the early Holocene. It's basically how we get, I mean, if you do the periods in the Southeast, paleo Indian, early archaic, it's kind of what we cover for folks. So not only, yeah what happens when you come out of that. So, um, yeah, I think it's really interesting, but then again, I, this is my little corner of academia and I'm neck deep in the arguments. So I think it's the coolest stuff in the world, but that's just me. Well, there's so much that's changing, right? We get different lithic technologies and food ways and adaptations, different land use strategies. And then the environment starts changing just as people start getting accustomed to what's going on and they're constantly adapting and readapting. And so it's a great case study for just the Southeast is a great case study for how adaptive humans are really. I mean, like if you're on the coast, yeah. sea level rise is coming up ridiculously yeah. fast. So all the coast, like we got a chapter that's just on underwater archeology span and the chapter on Florida in particular talks a lot about like how these like what would have been, what would have happened with sea level rise? Um, that would have been like the the time when it was coming up really fast. Just as an example, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could I could talk about this stuff for days. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll we'll put a link to where you can buy the book. And like they said, if you email them, they will give you a discount code because they want to make money, but they're also not out to bankrupt everyone in in the world. But so we. we <laughs> On that somber note, uh, we did wanted to have you guys back because we have a we have an gr- ongoing group text that usually brings up a variety of different things, topics, etc. And we had floated some papers back and forth. We always want to have you guys on because you're a fun duo to kind of deconstruct papers and make us laugh, etc. And one of the papers that we had kind of passed around was this LSU Mounds paper, which is this, it's, it's kind of a big. Let's <laughs> just, let's just call it what it is. Yeah. It's a, it's a big claim. It's basically pushing back mound building in North America, like six, 7,000 years or so. And I think to start off, can you guys like at least like give like an intro to like what mound building is and when we kind of find it in 
North America or even specifically in the Southeast, because that's where we're usually seeing these kind of mountain building cultures, right? So Eastern North America is kind of precocious when it comes to mound building. Um, it happens here earlier than about anywhere else in the Americas. So like the hottest of hot spots for this is the lower Mississippi River Valley. So if you are into mounds and the history of mound building culture, I think it's probably smart to plug like Meg Kassebaum. She's written, she's got an overview paper on this. I think she has a book that's out or it's about to come out where she talks about mound building in the Americas. And like the earth, like the probably the most famous one that everybody knows of it's like an early mound building site is Poverty Point. So Poverty Point's a UNESCO World Heritage mm-hmm. Site. Swear to God, whenever you look at it from above and you compare it to the pictures of Burning Man, they look very, very similar. There's different arguments <laughs> that are kind of similar. Like this is a hunter-gatherer Burning Man where people come from all over bringing stuff, interact, and then disappear. There's some counter arguments that that might not be the case and it's all local. Nevertheless, like it's a cool enough site It's monumental architecture. It's built by hunter-gatherers. And then there's a set of mounds that are even earlier than that. And so whenever I teach intro to archaeology, I usually say Watson Break is this site in northeastern Louisiana. It's like a set of mounds. I usually say that's that's the earliest mounds in the Americas, and it's just over 5,000 years old. And so these folks are hunter-gatherers. There are still a ways from developing domesticated plants those domesticated plants, like they don't really show up down there. That's more of a mid-south, mid-continent thing. So these folks are hunter-gatherers and they're building mounds. So it's interesting and it's like this earliest thing. And so here we are again. It's like how early, how far back can we push the envelope now? So there's always feels like there's always somebody out there pushing, pushing the earliest mounds back, just like pushing the earliest people back. So there's, there's similarities in, in the arguments here. And I, I, I guess for, for context too, like Gobekli Tepe, I think is how you say it, was originally like kind of thought to be, it couldn't have been hunter-gatherers or whatever. I don't even know that that's true. I think people always thought it was. And it's like pre the time those kind of structures should be around kind of thing. But then again, they just built structures there at that time can we have like a sidebar so i was in a dive bar in florida i was just like i have my notebook <laughs> my the best way to start a story the best way to start a story yeah, just being a ha- the happiest boy in the world getting to spend labor day uh hanging out with my little brother his his girlfriend having a good time and i had an afternoon to myself and so i'm like i'm gonna go to this dive bar. flamingo and uh I'll be damned if I didn't sit there and have this guy start talking at me. And whenever anybody says, oh, you tell people you're an archaeologist and you're in there. Oh, you're an archaeologist. What about this Gobeki Tepe site? And it's just like immediately like the alarm bells in the back of the head. You're like, ah, this guy listens to Joe Rogan. I'm about to get talked at by some Joe Rogan. So whenever you say go back, you type me, I'm a little triggered because I'm like, oh, I'm about to get talked at by a boomer who listens to right. Joe Rogan. That was this. That was the story. That's like my that's like that's my keyword. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It's just one of those like buzzword things where I think it's spun that like archaeologists thought and now they're like upended and wrong about it. But like 
to my knowledge in the 10 years that I've studied archaeology, like it's always been assumed that it was old. Yeah. Um, well, it gets into not- that sensationalism that archaeology is unfortunately notoriously tied to, right? I mean, every headline about really interesting or the oldest or the biggest or something like that, the headlines were always this mystery confounds archaeologists. Archaeologists don't know X. Mm-hmm. And it just really sensationalizes all of these things that actually we do know a lot about, but that doesn't mean that we don't have questions still about them, right? Yeah. No, that's fair. And it's always good to have questions still. Yeah. Um, and I feel like this this paper, this LSU paper is in that same sort of vein is that it's very sensationalized. And I, I was, I was very accepting of it as like, Oh, this is, this is cool. I, I didn't read the article, but I assume they're doing good science, but it's, it turns out to be one of those things where you really dive deep into the article and you're kind of left with some questions. So like the, the big thing is, is that they basically went back and dated a bunch of cores from this, site from mounds on a site that's on LSU's campus, right? Is that the the kind mm-hmm. of gist of it? Yeah. So these like LSU mounds are like within those like group of archaic period mounds that are in Louisiana. So it's not surprising that they're like early, that they're part of this mound building culture. But the fact that they're like, you know, multiple millennia before Watson break, which is the oldest is like, all right, that's red flag number one. Like, really, is it is it is it that old? But then in the, the other part of your brain, you're like, well, they didn't think Watson Brake was that old until they went back and redated it. And they're like, holy shit. It's, I have to say, the difference between the two is the article on Watson Brake by Saunders et al. was written by archaeologists and it was published in American Antiquity. And so it was like, you're talking about a, a tight article that got through a peer review gauntlet. This one's a little different. And the, what journal I don't is this? Know, as journal, I had to Google the, <laughs> the American Journal uh, or the American Journal Science. of Science. It's like, I don't think <laughs> I've ever read an archaeology paper in this. And it mm. seems like it's geology based. It seems like it's legit. It doesn't seem like one of those like emails I get every morning. That's like, <laughs> dearest, dearest sir, please, please publish in our international journal of buzzwords. That's mm. like the scam emails. It seems like it's a legit journal, but I, I've never seen an archaeology paper in it. Yeah, I, yeah. I had to Google it as well, and their kind of claim to fame, the first thing that it says um, when you go to the journal's homepage is, they're the longest continually published scientific journal in the United States or North America or something like that. But yeah, I've never once read a paper in this before, which is, you know, kind of strange if we're talking about cutting edge, groundbreaking archaeology. Yeah. It's kind of like the label right. on. PBR or like the the ribbon, the blue ribbon on PBR when you pop the hood, you're like, oh. It's <laughs> <laughs> the most ridiculous comparison. Or you can say like comparative to Corona because it's like 
Cerveza Masfina. It's like it, not the best beer. It's it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 not American antiquity for archaeology. It might be it might be up there for I don't know. I don't know. I've never heard of it, but it's not. It's not like Saunders and American Antiquity from Watson Break. Sure. And I, I just feel odd reading this right here that like they have to use equations using pi multiple times in here to like analyze phytolith concentrations to, to date something. I could be like out of my wheelhouse understanding that, but like other papers, it's a pretty straightforward dating process. Um, Are we uh, digging into it now? <laughs> uh, we have to go to the next segment here, but uh, we can we can jump in like a hitting the ground running now. Welcome back to a Life Nerds podcast. We're talking about the LSU mounds that were just recently discovered to be very old. We're here with Doctor Tune and Doctor Miller. Uh, I'm going to read a, a selection from this this paragraph. If you guys want to turn your pages to page 796 of this article, second paragraph. The LSU campus mounds were first recognized in the 1800s, with archaeological work starting in the late 1900s. Following the death in 1984 of a sunbathing student who was run over by a small truck that was driven over the northern mound. Let's just stop there. (laughs) Uh, Well, I guess special efforts were made to protect the mounds. So not only was she run over by a truck, but she was on the mound, apparently, and the truck went over the mound and ran her over. They would have seen her. Was it them Duke boys? So here's the thing: like Duke's a hazard style. They could have like like went over it, and she was sunbathing on the backside of it, and like just some good old boys, you know, like over the top. (laughs) Also, I just want to clarify for listeners of this: we're not laughing because of the girl getting killed. We're laughing because this seems very strange to put into the paper without any other context. Yeah, so this goes back to like the quality of the journal thing. I don't think I've ever seen a sentence like that. Like an off, like that feels. I don't want to say off color, but it just seems bizarre to kind of have that sentence in there amongst all the other things that are in this piece. Maybe they were in the. Tr- I mean, I'm, I just assume it was some a woman sunbathing, but it could have been a man. Uh, let's just say a them was in the truck that was going over the mound, like they were trying to ramp it, and maybe they fell off the truck. And that's what happened because otherwise, like, either way, why does that lead to the protection of the mounds? Because it was soaked in blood? Like, I don't know. She was run over, though. They they say that, though, in the article. She was run over. So I don't think she just got, like, yeeted out of it. Mm. So I don't... Um, either way, it doesn't bode well for the mounds. <laughs> or the paper. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, did you find a journal article on it? A news? Yeah, uh, several. Well, I found, oh, I, ooh, newspaper article. Driver in LSU Indian mound death placed on probation. <laughs> you can't, let me see it, you get probation for running somebody over. <laughs> oh, my God. The driver of a car that struck and killed a co-ed on the Indian mounds at LSU was put on two years probation after receiving a stern lecture from District Judge Bob Hester. Oh, what? boy. Charged with reckless That's- operation of a motor vehicle. What you did was childish, foolish act of gross negligence. That's manslaughter. Right? Wait, I want to make sure that I understand, Shane. 
this person was given a stern lecture and two years probation for killing another human? Yes. So okay. he told he told the the guy that the greatest penalty he would face would be his own conscience because he would have to live with the fact that a young girl was killed because of his action. Uh, it was in November. I'm dating in November. All right, 1984. Da da da. Smoke and another student were sitting atop the mound when a car driven by Mullen veered up the hill and struck and killed her. Wow. What a weird rabbit hole to go down on an archaeological article about the oldest mounds in the Americas. Well, it's not really all that much archaeology in here anyways. Yeah, I, feel, I, feel, I, feel, I feel like everyone can notice that we're avoiding the subject of it a little bit because it's it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, there's many critiques of this paper, and I feel like we can start with the lack of or if you guys have any other sort of idea, like the lack of archaeology in this paper. Well, I mean, it's kind of a strange one, right? Because the mounds are inherently archaeological, inherently built by Native American communities there. But the authors of the paper have no apparent background in archaeology. They're coming from geology and astrophysics, and there's no discussion of the archaeology hmm. at all. It's just basically talking about the geology and geophysics of the mounds themselves. I remember seeing these guys give a paper on this. I think the like every every once in a while, Mississippi and Louisiana have like joint state meetings. I remember I vaguely remember watching them give a paper on this. And I'm wanting to think they were trying to argue then that it was younger Dryasen age because I think maybe they had OSL dates or something. And now it's early Holocene in age because they got radiocarbon dates. Um, don't hold me to that um, several years ago. Well, Shane, it's funny you say that because they start the paper by saying that Mound B dates to the younger Dryas but explicitly say the Younger Dryas ends at 11,700 and that Mount B was initially constructed about 11,000. So yeah. like, this doesn't really line up at all. So it sounds like part of this maybe is left over from that presentation that you're talking about. And then they just kind of added some paragraphs to it later on. Yeah. Uh- I mean, there's certain things here that like whenever I went through and it like caught my eye, like the guy who did the original study that they referenced, Homburg. Homburg is a soil scientist. I've met him. He's a cool dude. He actually, I think he works for SRI in Tucson, the Southwest, like a really good geoarchaeologist, like soils guy. And so he did the initial studies of the cores that basically show that, that they were built quickly, which is not out of the norm because that's what Watson Brake seems like he was built quickly and it's not out of the norm to see that before they build a mound they set fire to the vegetation so it's not out of the ordinary to see ash at the bottom and you got to think if it's like bamboo that is growing there's a lot of bioturbation that's an older surface it's so that apparently they're built on pleistocene terraces covered in bamboo that they burnt. They got really hot. If you've ever seen the floor of a bamboo forest, it's covered with dry bits and pieces of bamboo that fall off. So it's not crazy that you would get a hot fire if you like 
torched a whole bunch of bamboo as you're like trying to clean the surface off so you can build them out. None of that's out of the ordinary or crazy. It's just their interpretation of the dates there. If it went through American antiquity, first thing we can talk about is those set of radiocarbon dates, which I've never seen anybody feel like they had to go through the need to explain what a Sigma symbol was in Greek. They did that. They're like this symbol being standard deviation. It means this. And I'm not exactly sure that their definition of what a standard deviation on a radiocarbon date means is actually accurate. I wish Carlton was here because I have a feeling Carlton would be like, I don't think that's what that means. But that table, I think, screams geologists doing archaeology and not archaeologists trying to date a mound to me. Mm. What is, yeah, I think that's the bread and butter of this article is that table of dates. Yeah, and you know it it's it's a combination of things I think that that stood out to me was that table with the radiocarbon dates but to actually understand the context of them then you had to refer back to a different figure figure 11 which takes a minute to to understand I mean I under, it's an interesting approach that they made to try to piece together where all of these different layers of mound building were occurring and when they're occurring. Um, but you're really having to kind of pull information from one to the other instead of what we're accustomed to in archaeology with a nice simple table with lab numbers, ages, standard deviation aligned in stratigraphic order and information about what's actually being dated. And I know they include that on here. They talk about if it's phytoless or charcoal or organic sediment. But when you really dive into their discussion of that, they're talking about dates that are mixed samples. They're talking about dates that are not just pure phytoless samples or charcoal samples, but they actually say in a one instance that this particular radiocarbon age comes from phytoless with bone mixed into that sample. So they're, they're mixed samples that are coming from different, different materials, which is to me a huge red flag. I mean, that's, that's kind of one of the first things that, that we're ever taught as archeologists in grad school is don't date mixed samples because you're dating multiple things. <laughs> I yeah, think I, is, is plant material, right? Just for the audience. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Idolists are like the inorganic parts of plants. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so that figure he's talking about has time on the X axis and then depth on the Y axis. And then there's some sort of sp- spatial or something. It's, it's, it's wild when, when it's like, it screams like age depth mod age depth modeling is something you should do run it through R, run it through anything that we do now today and, and carlton would be able to talk to this more about age depth modeling and, and kind of trying to figure out stratigraphic stuff using different programs to kind of guess in between what happens and that's not shown here that's kind of it's kind of this wild figure that still hurts my brain as i'm looking at it that would be the first thing if, the, if this if this came across my inbox for peer review. The first thing I would ask is, where is your Bayesian modeling? 
Right. Where is your Bayesian modeling to give us beginning and end phase dates with some kind of confidence in whether whether or not you've got this model correctly and to help us identify which dates are anomalous or not? Like that standard practice, it's been practiced for a while. Like this, since uh, the first time I ever saw somebody do it and do it really like in a cool, interesting way was at a SEAC. I watched Tim Schilling do his early Bayesian modeling of the dates for the construction of Monk's Mound at Cahokia. So he had all these dates from all these cores and he put them all together and ran this Bayesian model. I was figuring out, all right, this was built in, this is built in. And since then, it's like widespread use whenever people are modeling deposits, particularly of mounds because mounds and I'm like, where, where is this? Where is, where is this? Like, how do we know which ones that you're cherry? Like it screams a little cherry picking to like, say, here's the ones we like. And down here at the bottom, here's our anomalous ones um, without yeah, exactly. any kind of statistical rigor. Yeah. I mean, they, they just come out and say that they're removing a number of dates because they don't think that the ages line up with the stratigraphic position. Why did they pick those particular dates to throw out and say that are anomalous versus the other ones, right? And that's the whole reason why Bayesian analysis is now all of the rage for these types of archaeological questions and problems that are based on, you know, this time depth sequence. So I, I compare and contrast this a little bit with like there is a PhD student at WashU, two of them, um, Seth Grooms and Grace Ward, and they I think Seth won the student paper prize last. Do you remember Jesse last year the CX student paper prize? Was that Seth? I can't remember off the top of my head. One to think it was Seth, and so what he did was like this great presentation that was like here's a sequence of steps not only did he like here's all my like in-depth soils data here's my cores here's my reconstruction of all these units here's the pictures here's the dates here's the modeling but then like walked you through like here's the narrative of how these things were constructed it was easy to follow and it made sense and it was intuitive and that to me was like everything you'd want to like make the case and in that case, it was a really interesting finding because you had Poverty Point, which is this big Kahuna mound site. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And people assumed the site across the, across the Mississippi River in northern Mississippi called Jaketown was kind of like an outlier to Poverty Point, that it was like something where these Poverty Point may, people may have been living, one of these places they may have been coming from and coming to Poverty, Poverty Point for the, the big Poverty Point party. What he actually found is those sites at those mounds at Jaketown predate Pottery uh, Poverty Point, and so it was like a great way of this is how you construct a convincing argument that a site is older than how you think it is when you're dealing with these archaic mounds, and none of it doesn't seem like a lot of that stuff that Seth and Grace had at Jaketown is in this. The other thing I would ask is, where's your particle size analysis? Where's your soil descriptions? Where's your micromorphology? Like a lot of what we know about mounds now, and if you there's a great article if you are in archaeology and you're in southeastern archaeology, there's an article that T.R. Kidder and Sarah Sherwood wrote called "The Da Vinci's of Dirt," and they kind of put their stuff together to talk about like mound building through time and how you do geo work on a mound, 
and make a case. Like Sarah's got like really detailed examples of like Shiloh mounds where like they're patching the mounds after they erode with sod turned upside down and they've picked out insects and earthworms and stuff because there's no class from that. So I'm like, we can do a lot of really in-depth stuff and it's just not in this that I'm like, okay, where is it? Where This is what I need to be convinced and it's not there. Is that a window? Also, uh, no, that, that, that's great. And they spend a lot of time talking about part of their argument is that there are these like consistent fires that burned and that they're of human origin. So they spend a lot of time talking about mm-hmm. magnetics. I'm going to fuck mess up this word magnetic susceptibility and wow and those methods but i i it seems like they're not answering the bigger question and they're not doing doing the analysis that we want to see where we want to see the things these things are proved before you start talking about the use of fire before you before you start talking about ceremonialism even as part of this that's kind of something they've added to it which is very sketchy to me. Well, I don't know if we have time in this segment or not, um, but yeah, I have some thoughts on why we have these archaeological questions that remain about this. Well, Jesse, let's take that up in the next segment. Welcome back to episode 126 of a Life and Ruins podcast. We're here with Dr. Jesse Toon and Dr. Shane Miller, and we are talking about the LSU Mounds paper. We're going to talk about old mounds, and Jesse had a bone to pick with something. Well, when this first came out and people started talking about it, I found it kind of strange that I didn't know anyone on the, I didn't know any of the co-authors on the paper. Neither did she. Like the big cheese in Southeastern Arc too. (laughs) Well, that's not at all what I'm getting at, but (laughs) you know, just publish a book about Southeastern archeology span that dates to this time period that basically has, every major archaeologist in an academic setting who works on this time period archaeology in the Southeast. And I don't bring that up to diminish the co-authors and their backgrounds and and the science that goes into this paper at all. But as it turns out, archaeology is a difficult science and you have to have training and a background to actually interpret some of these things. And numerous times throughout the paper, it, is pretty obvious that the folks writing this don't understand anything about the archaeological context of the time period and of the region. If you look at their background and training, they're all very accomplished scholars of geoscience, geology, astrophysics. There there are a number of distinguished professors on the paper as co-authors, but they don't have the background to talk about archaeology necessarily in this context. And that comes through, you know, when they're talking about the ceremonialism of these mounds and human cremations, but provide no information to back up their interpretation that these were human cremations in these ash layers at the bottoms of the mounds. Was it just because it was so hot? Is that what the whole entire argument is like? That's what they... they was that what they were getting at? Well, they say know. that the fires were, quote, very hot and go <laughs> on to say that there were 300 degrees Celsius. Wildfires burn every day 
at temperatures above 800 degrees Celsius. So saying that they're 300 degrees Celsius doesn't really mean anything, right, in terms of the cause of these fires. So, yeah, doesn't they don't really explain anything or cite anything about where they're coming up with this interpretation that these are cremation, human cremations. They try to argue this point that the mounds are old because humans have been in the Americas for 10,000 years by that point, so they've developed these complex cultural traditions. That's a whole other debate about when people got to North America, right? And they reference the presumed human trackways and, and feet prints at White Sands, and they actually cite something for that. They, they cite Lizzie Wade's kind of public-facing piece in science. Lizzie Wade is a contributing correspondent for the journal Science. She does great work talking about archaeology, but if you're trying to use that to support your argument, you should cite the actual scientific peer-reviewed paper instead of the public-facing discussion of that paper. They, they don't even mention anything that Matthew Bennett and, and his colleagues did about that. So it's clear that they don't really have any kind of grasp on the archaeological literature or the background that, that goes into forming the context here. So I feel like that's a good segue into this point. We can talk about them or the, the dates, right? Like this gets, if you're an archaeologist and especially one that have like run the gauntlet that Toon and I have run on, run through for, for a while now on the paleo Indian stuff, when you date something and you publish a date, that is going to be like the most scrutinized thing that you're probably going to, if people are going to want to know, they're not only going to want to know what the dates are, what exactly you dated. They're going to need you to see that you can substantiate what you say it is. And they're going to want to see like the values of the raw numbers and everything used to actually derive that day. There is a, the latest paper that waters it all did on the dating of Clovis, they not only went into the details of the Clovis dates from Findel Mundo about what they were said they were dating, what the context of what they were saying, the relationship of the archaeology of the dating. They even went as far as to critique the statistical methods that the University of Arizona's radiocarbon lab was using to get the standard deviations on their date. So, I mean, like, it gets deep into... The weeds. And then there's like a whole entire body of theory out there that if you're an archaeologist, that it's called site formation theory. It's you read every archaeologist reads it in grad school about like how archaeological sites are created, all the things that can happen after that archaeological site is created. And I'm sitting here thinking like if you have a stable surface that's accumulating a lot of debris from bamboo and then it's burnt and then it's chewed up from people making a mound that screams bioturbation that screams like there's a famous old wood problem and that's where it's like you inadvertently date something that's much older than your archaeological site and the classic example of this would be like beams in the southwest where you're like recycling old logs to use as beams for your house 
and you were to date that log and it might be much, much older than the actual age of the occupation of the house. So, I mean, like there's a lot here that could be giving you older dates. You could be dating an old surface. You could be dating old wood. And there's a bunch of the geoarch stuff that we see that's just not here. So it's like, I don't know how to even talk about it because the stuff that I normally talk about is just not here. Yeah, that, that's a good point, Shane. I mean, it, <laughs> there's a reason that this paper, I, I think, is hasn't been discussed that much in archaeological circles because the information that we need to discuss it isn't even there. And, and again, I mean, I think that's another red flag, right, for, for trying to understand what's going on with this. Uh, I should point out that I looked up the article, uh, Meg Kassebaum's article in, in the break, and she has a table of the oldest mounds in the lower Mississippi River Valley. And there is, she has Montesano in there, and the dates for that one are... 5,500 to 4,000 BC. So 7,500 potentially as old as Montesano. And so it's not, this one is not crazy older than that. But the link, the article that she references in the Louisiana Conservancy. So I'm really curious. I might have to dig into Montesano to see if Montesano is actually as old as they say it is. And if it's, or if it's another article like this. But if Meg's citing it, I actually have some trust that she's done her homework on it. So they've they've published this article. They have dates. They have this core. If they want to prove or if they want to study this further, how does one excavate a mound or how does one sample a mound to kind of corroborate these dates and hopefully get some sort of archaeology or something like that to make it feel and and make their argument stronger essentially for one i would love to see there's something about like soil descriptions like probably that are in homburg's research that would be nice to see there would be particle size paired up with that magnetic success accessibility success so you did it better than me and some uh, organic carbon percent to let us know, like, all right, are you looking at, are we in an old surface here? Is it like at the bottom of that mound, where does the buried soil begin where this thing was presumably built on top of organic carbon percent and particle size would show you where that started. I would like to see some kind of, like they have a unit in this thing that clearly somebody has dug, excavate that out, get somebody out to come do some micromorphology. Let's look at that ash And let's see what, get somebody who's seen some micromorphology of some ash deposits, somebody like a Sarah Sherwood or a Susan Menser to look at it. I think that you adding in some Bayesian modeling so you could really evaluate these radiocarbon dates and like having somebody who's an expert in that and also knows the pitfalls of what happens when you're comparing sediment dates to phytolith dates to phytolith dates with bone mixed in to like all these issues. And then somebody who can, who is an expert in like the regional archeology span that can put this into some kind of context and really lay the picture. Is this really an outlier? Is this an unexpected result? And if that's the case, why might that be? So somebody like a TR kidder, that I think would, would have would have made this a lot better, that would have cleaned this up and streamlined it quite a bit. I think like if you're looking at people, different people to like read up, like how is this done, done in convincing ways, 
T.R. Kidder, his students, Seth Grooms and Grace Ward are some of the best at doing this right now. They're, they're, they got some of the best stuff coming out. These archaic mounds. Already said Sarah Sherwood, Meg Kassebaum, Tim Schilling. If you're interested in some stuff with like Bayesian modeling, the stuff, the people that I like, if I have Bayesian modeling question problems, issues for this type of stuff, I go to Jake Lulowitz. If you want to see a good geoarchaeology rundown of a mounds and mound building episodes, and you really want to get into the weeds and look at what like a real archaeological monograph looks like, go get David Anderson's reports from Shiloh Mounds and read that. We're going to have him on uh, for that You want to see like what it takes to really write up and make a case. Um, that's what it looks like. That's what the real deal looks like. That's, that's what I would, that's, that's all I got. I feel like I was long winded. And I think those are good points, right? Because if the mounds are as old as they are trying to argue that they are, that's really cool. That's incredibly exciting. And we're all going to be over the moon to hear about it and hear all of these details. But those are the details that make us as archaeologists excited about this, right? That's actually what makes the story. You know, that's what Shane was saying. Like, if you want to create this story and, and interpret the data, those are the things you're going to have to do instead of giving some kind of strange description of the history of mounds in the Eastern woodlands, and then throw in a paragraph about astronomical alignments of a couple of mounds without any kind of context. Um, that that's just, kind of clickbaity is really kind of what it comes down to. Yeah. I got a hypothetical for you guys. Let's hear it. So for paleo Indian stuff, like we've got all these papers that have come out in the last few years using all kinds of manners, to, uh, man, uh, big data, data sets to kind of predict like, you know, when certain megafauna disappears and when people shows up, show up and everything that's like, you know, like, using various mathematical curves to try to predict the earliest of something like when, when is the window for like when either something shows up or something disappears, you know, first appearance, last appearance, right? Like archaeologists, like paleomedian archaeologists and people interested in like vertebrate paleontology, right? You guys follow me here so far? Yeah. Why don't we see that type of stuff for like trying to figure out, like they got a big data set of mounds, like, why don't you see like them being like, all right, why can't we run this curve against mounds or like the appearance of corn in like Eastern woodlands and stuff like that? Why don't you see that same type of mathematical model, mathematical modeling to try to figure out the earliest of something? This is people studying later stuff. I guess it's kind of like presumed we just know a little more about that. And like, it's not, no one's really delved into that, that nitty gritty so far, but now that you bring it up, like that is interesting. I think maybe part of that is because those of us who work on the early end of things, we don't have a lot of stuff to work with. Mm -hmm. But if you're working on the more recent end of things, you have a lot more data, a lot more information to go by. And so you don't have to necessarily dig into those level questions quite as much. But, you know, for us, that's that's natural. That's the first thing that kind of comes to mind, right? Because that's typically the some of the only things that we have to go by. 
like I think about like this article not too long ago that came out that uh, talking about the appearance of maize in the eastern woodlands, and for years it was kind of like late woodland is kind of when most of the dates pop up, but then there's always been like this ice house bottom date from like the middle woodland or something that uh, I think it's ice house bottom. And there was an article that came out that basically looked into it and it was like, nah, this date is wrong. And so it's this monster outlier. And that if you had like run mathematical modeling, it would have probably flagged this as an outlier date, but no one really, I don't, I don't really see that. Or if I see it, it's like squirreled away, like in corners of like academia that unless you're in that niche, you don't see it. Like, yeah, the Reddit headline of, corn in this specific area not as old as we thought isn't like right. the best sexiest headline right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of feel like, mound, like we got so much mound data right like that like why why aren't people trying shit out on this and then getting a proof of concept down for paleo indian stuff instead it seems i don't know it's maybe it's because mm-hmm. Like Jesse was saying, like necessity is the mother of invention. We don't have enough shit, so we're willing to try experimental mathematical modeling, which <laughs> yeah. gets people all worked up, giving the people yeah. what they I would also say it's like high stakes. Like the earliest people in North America is like a high stakes. Like you're you're gambling at like the, the big blackjack tables. Everyone else is at like the, the $1, $5 pay-ins sort of thing, you know? It's it's kind of make or break up there. It doesn't make it less interesting, but it's, it seems like that the stakes are much higher in that Paleo-Indian period. I'm going to tell people doing Mississippi and archaeology that they're, they're at the little kid blackjack table. And that's why <laughs> no matter how big a room they schedule for Paleo-Indian stuff, it will always fill up. And yet you walk in SAAs and it's like, here's like some like, esoteric Mississippian session and it's in a big ballroom with four people and you get like an echo on the walls. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna start calling us the big blackjack table. We're the high rollers. Oh, I'm well, thank you for being, <laughs> no, thank I'm you guys for being the high rollers on this podcast, by yeah. the way. Yeah. It's Jesse's third or fourth time. Fourth and Shane's, Shane's at the big five. Damn, dude. Yeah, we got to get those bathrobes ready. <laughs> All right. Look, look velvet bathrobes. <laughs> we can't I, afford I, velvet. With your faces on the back, embroidered on the back. Yes. <laughs> In a tory. I, like uh, I, I had one more question. Like, I guess I'll make this quick. But I want that on the back of my bathrobe. <laughs> That's yeah. what I was thinking, oh. too. <laughs> the, the little chibis. <laughs> That's really funny. He has one (laughs) (laughs) quickly. I just want to ask, like we talked about how, like if this went through antiquity, it'd be extremely scrutinized. And we're like, antiquity is pretty sound or American antiquity. And like, but this is in some other random journal that we've never heard of to the public. That might sound like when you put it through an archeological journal, the archeology span mafia is like, no, we don't like this and won't put it in there. And that's why all these people like Saruti go to other journals and things like that. I guess my question would be like, I don't know. I guess that's just an observation. Like it could come across that way, but also like we do good science and therefore we like try to be scrutinous of science, you know? I just don't know how the people would interpret that. 
Well, I, I was actually thinking about that earlier this afternoon. And I think, honestly, this paper is another example of when peer review fails. If you mm. read the acknowledgments, they think a single reviewer, and this is not an archaeology journal, but it's an archaeology paper, or at least they're trying to make it sound like one. Yeah. If this was in an archaeology journal, you're going to have multiple reviewers who are specialized in multiple areas that are really critical to this paper. All of those things that Shane was talking about a minute ago, you're going to have specialized reviewers in most of those instead of a single person who may or may not have any background in archaeology. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's not that the archaeology mafia is, you know, out there in the shadows trying to keep things suppressed. But again, it comes back to that idea that archaeology is a very challenging science that you have to have the appropriate background to to discuss these kinds of things. Speaking of uh, archaeology mafia, that archaeology mafia can help you stay on the rails if you get off the rails. Like, I mean, like Jesse's saying, it's like guardrails at the same time to keep keep us all like somebody goes off. The, and speaking of, I just got a text back from Meg Casabom, who told me all these years, I've been telling my students Watson Break is the earliest mound site. And she told me that Montesano is actually the earliest mound site. And so she says that there's a new volume in Louisiana archaeology on it that's coming out. And uh, so that's actually the earliest site. So... My members so of archaeology yeah, went through. Yeah, stay tuned for that. And also, Shane is a big fraud, so don't listen to anything he lectures <laughs> about. And one peer reviewer was mentioned in, in the acknowledgments, but not one in loving memory of the girl who was run over. Um, <laughs> RP, run that in there. Let's just take a moment of silence for them. All right, enough, uh, guys. <laughs> where can our audience find you? Durango, Colorado. Or fishing <laughs> on the Gulf Coast. Okay. Oh, man. The dive bars of Florida's uh, Treasure Coast. That's right. Mississippi. <laughs> All right. They're on Academia. Shane's got a Twitter. I think, Jesse, you have a Twitter as well. And yeah. Uh, we'll drop some links of their emails so you, you can get discounts on their books. Buy the book. Listen to their previous episodes. Search them weirdly on academia.edu. Shane really likes that. Yeah, thank you guys for coming on. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Connor, what is uh, what is your joke this week? No, I don't know if you guys just heard about this. Uh, a new type of broom came out. It's sweeping the nation. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh. I gotta go fill out this expense report. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> I'll see you guys later. <laughs> <laughs>
Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.